This is Model Rail Radio, and this is your co-host, Chris Abbott, speaking with Big Al Mayo of Monster Railroad. And uh, I finally got a hold of Al today after a number of interesting problems, but uh, we're hooked up, and we're going to be talking about what Al's doing in the hobby. Hey, Al, introduce yourself to the gang. Hey, what's up, fellas? How you doing? It's your boy, Al Mayo. Uh, some of you may know who I am. Some of you might not. Um, I do videos on YouTube, mainly how-to videos, uh, mostly around uh, model railroading and um, weathering is something I've gotten into, custom graffiti, all hand-done, and uh, I helped start up a website called DrainLife.com, in which uh, I was advocating for that, for everyone to go there, and... Um, a lot of people has got, have gone there, and they find me between Train Life and on YouTube. That's where I'm located. I got to say, you, you break pretty much every demographic in the model railroad hobby. And uh, especially, especially with your focus on modern image railroads and the graffiti that's on the cars. Now, I got to ask you, how did you get involved in the hobby in the first place? I know you, you've really... Your, your website says you've been involved since about 2000, and your current layout was started in 2004. But, I mean, you must have been interested in railroads before this. Back in the day, I lived in uh, little projects, you know, little ghetto projects, and the train used to come by. In fact, it was the uh, Amtrak came through. I would see the train go by probably 10 times a day in New London, Connecticut, and I would also see Providence of Worcester's trains. And I didn't know until, like, you know, 20 years later that I had a fascination for it. Um, in the meantime of leaving the projects in 1990, all the way up until 2000, 10 years later, I had uh, no interest really. I wasn't looking for model trains. I wasn't trying to build model trains or anything. It was 10 years, nothing to do with model trains. And then one day I walked into Toys R Us and I was collecting Simpson figures at the time. And I was going in there to get some Simpson figures and stumbled upon a, a Union Pacific cheap Bachman or lifelike train set and uh that's where it all started I bought a couple of the sets put it together and that was in like 2000 it was a little cheesy train layout four by eight and uh then I moved out of my parents house and I began that's it I moved out a few years later after the train layout was built and when I moved into my house here in 2003 I began building another four by eight which I purchased from someone partially completed. Once I completed it, I realized that I wasn't what I wanted. I wanted something that was huge, modern, and desert-like. That was a typical green tree, green grass layout. So I began on my layout, which was the current layout I have now, February 12th, 2004. So how do you get from Amtrak to uh, UP in the desert? I really don't know. I mean, only thing that I know that was interesting was I didn't want to do the green trees, green grass layouts that everyone does. So I decided, oh, what's a little bit different, and it's the desert layouts. So that's how the desert came about. And then when it came to the desert, I wanted modern. It would be basically BNSF or Union Pacific. And I like the Union Pacific colors, and that's just how it came about. What was it that got you into the modern image? I mean, obviously you didn't grow up with uh, steam engines and uh, uh, first-generation GP9, GP7 diesels. I mean, you're seeing uh, the Amtrak, uh, what, F59PH or... Uh, well, at the time, I don't know what it was before. It was probably PF40s or something like that. Is that what... It... Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. At 40s or so, that was what I remember seeing. But also Providence and Worcester's U23s, I think they were. Um, so I did see the freights and diesel, the freight by the train station as well. The modern is what I basically, you know, I'm here. So I like to modern. Also, when it comes to doing model trains, I like to do... I like I like the cars. I like the buildings that we see today. So that's why I decided upon modern, and then that just came with the modern rolling stock. I wanted big engines, big power. Six engine axles is what came about. ST seventy M's, AC forty four hundreds, ST seventy ACEs. That's all what's interesting to me. That's what I like to see. Being a sort of a transition era guy myself, I took the opportunity last summer to go to the Electromotive Diesel shops here in London, Ontario, where they build the SD70s. Wow. And I got to tell you, those things are massive. 420,000 pounds, bigger than a two-story building and, and long. Oh, man. Uh, so, yeah, I can understand the appeal uh, of the, the large power. And uh, your website with all of your videos, is, I got to say, it's, it's quite extensive, quite comprehensive in what you're covering there. You're showing people how to do everything from... Laying track, making mountains, uh, painting the backdrops, blending them in. What was it that got you into doing the videos? Was it just, you know, I obviously have an enthusiasm and an energy associated with the hobby, which is what really caught my eye uh, after Springfield. But, you know, most people that uh, that do the hobby kind of stay in the basement and they hide or they, they're, yeah, you know, they're, right. they're just doing it by themselves and in sort of isolation. But here you are, you're going to shows, you're taking the videos, you're, you're doing these demos, uh, the weathering, the, the graffiti and everything, uh, that takes a lot of time and energy away from the hobby. At least some people would say that, but obviously you love doing it. So what is it about it? What is it about it? I could tell you that, um, for me, I like to do, First of all, I, I admit that I'm a big kid, you know, and I'm immature, so I'm not embarrassed to say, oh, yeah, I do model trains. So that's one thing that's a lot different from a lot of people. I just go out there and say, yo, I love trains. I love model trains. The videos came naturally because I don't have any fear of talking in front of people or being in front of the camera. Um, but the reason why I started the videos on YouTube is because I was also on the train forums back in the day, you know, when I first started in 06, 07, right around that time period. Well, actually around 04 or 05, and what would happen is I would be uh, banned, I guess you can call it, from the forums for just saying jokes and being myself, basically, being outrageous, having fun, and it would get me banned left and right from these forums, and people people started to know who I was. I was infamous Al Mayo. So I was being censored left and right on the forums, and then basically... After being banned, you know, a couple times and banned for life for dumb stuff that I, you know, wasn't big deal, but happened. I started doing videos. I said, okay, I'll do videos and I won't be censored and I can do what I want to do and uh, show people what I'm doing. And that's how the videos came about. That's I discovered YouTube in 2007 and heard of them when they started in 2005, but I discovered it and started opening up an account in 07. And just went from there. I started making video after video. Uh, they were crude at first, unedited videos. Um, a little more obnoxious then than it is now. I uh, found myself swearing a little bit more than I do today. Because at that time, I had a few subscribers, and it just grew to what it is today. At around 3,600 subscribers. That's pretty impressive. That's like having your own TV station almost. I guess it does feel like that sometimes, you know. Doing my videos and... Uh, 
of people who actually look forward to seeing it, which is it's pretty straight and it's cool. I like that. I like that. That people want to see what I have going on next. People enjoy, you know, what I do, how I do it, and how I come across in my videos. You mentioned in one of your videos that uh, Pella Solberg is one of the people that kind of gives you something to uh, something inspiring to look at. Are there any other people in the hobby these days that uh, that you find uh, interesting or? Uh, especially creative that you you find some inspiration i can't think of like any particular person the only reason why pelly was one was because after i started do- i did my layout before i even knew who he was first of all i just decided desert and everything and then out of nowhere i seen this model railroad uh magazine which he was featured featured in and uh that's why i was like wow this guy's doing what i'm doing i'm pretty interested in it and i like seeing the desert and all that modern stuff. So it was a perfect match for me and something to uh, be inspired by. Everyone else wasn't doing this out there. So there was really nothing else that was really attracting to me. I tend to see the same green tree, green grass layouts and a lot of that transition train layouts that you see in the model railroad magazine. They seldom show modern stuff. So for me, um, there was like, really wasn't much. You know, and then I had a fascination with weathering the rolling stock as well, which was another part that I just took off with about two years ago now. Yeah, the weathering of the rolling stock is uh, is something that, that uh, caught my eye. Now, as I said, I'm a transition era guy. There's no uh, graffiti on any of the cars. Maybe there might be a few chalk marks from the uh, trainmen uh, making notes right. about bad order car or... Uh, return after empty or something like that but what i'm seeing you doing with the the full side graffiti here this yeah. is not, it's not something you know like the commercial graffiti cars that these you've seen from maybe say microtrains or uh, or kd or uh, some of the newer uh, small run manufacturers i think micro scale might make graffitis i think they do but they're all just commercial it's, yeah it's it's um you know, if you buy a set of the graffiti decals to apply to the car, that car is going to look pretty much the same as the next car. Right. And uh, when I saw what you were doing on the videos where you were taking the prototype photo and a car that was the same make and model, that is, say, a center flow hopper or a covered hopper, and then you lay into it with the pens and the markers and all manner of uh, arcane stuff here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I I was I got I, that was when it hit me that 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 graffiti was not in terms of the representation of graffiti in the model was not a bad thing. Not that I advocate the application of graffiti to the full size cars, because of course when you obscure the reporting marks and the other things that the trainmen need to get uh, goods from one side of the country to the other, that's not a good thing. But I got you know really. The artistic talent that you see displayed, that some of these people, the effort they put out in what has to be a fairly short period of time, in a restricted place, in the dark maybe, really fantastic. And here you are uh, duplicating it and making it your own. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, to have Al Mayo do a copy of a car has got to be pretty flattering, I'll tell you. But how do you go about what is, what is it that catches your eye? I like to see highly weathered, you know, pretty weathered uh, cars, and then a nice, unique uh, graffiti that's just 
interesting to me, and, and I can see a lot of stuff, but there's only a few of them that I'll end up doing, and um, there's been a few times, actually, believe it or not, where I've actually copied the cars, and the person who actually did, did the real car has contacted me on YouTube and said, I actually did that car, you know? Not that I'm uh, advocating for people to go out there and spray paint railroad cars or anything like that, but the person, a couple times people have contacted me to say, that's the car I actually did, and, and you did it right there, great job. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, cool. I don't know, just really, really unique-looking ones. And people send me pictures of them all the time. So art imitates life. Sure that- does. <laughs> I tell people all the time, if you're going to do modern railroading, you have to have graffiti. I don't want to hear this, oh, I'm not advocating for that, and I'm not I'm not going to advertise for these people out there destroying uh, railroad equipment. It's just a part of life. It's something that's out there, you know. If you're going to model, model the modern era, you have to have that in there. If you're just going to have nice, clean cars or weathered cars and no graffiti, it doesn't look realistic, you know. Right. So people send you examples of cars, I guess, from all over the place now. You get stuff from probably all over Canada and the U.S. Uh, sure. If you don't find something you need, like an image you need or a particular angle of the car that you want to duplicate, where do you go to find your images? Where where can you go? Is there a resource available for people to go out and get the data so that they can duplicate your efforts? Well, yeah, there's a couple websites I use um, quite often. I do a lot of research. What I call research is basically searching on these couple websites I use, which is Rail Pictures. I don't even know what the website is. One of them is called railcarphotos.com or .net. There's just two of them that I mainly use all the time for rolling stock. And I refer to that those two websites to find items that I'm really interested in. Sometimes I go to the most popular pictures. There's, there's searches for the most popular, searches for the newest editions. Sometimes I look for specific rolling stock. So, for example, if the Athens Genesis is going to release a Trinity 3-Bay Hopper, and I like it, I'm going to buy it. Once I buy it, I will log on to these couple websites, and I will do a search for those same hoppers. Then I'll do a number search. Uh, If I don't find the exact number that I want to do, typically the job goes down to me to basically renumber them. So I go as far as to renumber the the car, and then do the weathering from it. I want to do it as realistic as I can, so it takes renumbering cars often. And uh, a lot of my research comes from photos on those websites. A lot of people send me photos, too, because on my videos I say, hey, if you got some unique-looking rolling stock, send it to me. So I get a lot of emails of uh, cool rolling stock, and I save all the pictures. And I have hundreds and hundreds of pictures on file for doing future projects. Right. Now, what's your prep uh, sequence? When you, you've decided you're going to do a car, you've got the blank piece of rolling stock from the manufacturer you've got right. everything in front of you what's your prep sequence now is there anything you have to do to the car before you start in because of course you're not using uh, a paintbrush and uh or an airbrush right away well you do your uh, fade down correct uh, all right so what i basically do is i get the car the very first thing i do which a lot of people don't realize this but the first thing i do is put on gloves i do not even handle the car once it's out of the box, I do not even handle the car without gloves on. And what that does is basically stops, it prevents the uh, fingerprints, you know, from the oil. It gets on the car, and then once you start weathering the car, there's fingerprints on him. Before I even started weathering, I was buying people's weathered stuff. I would get people's stuff with their fingerprints on it. I'd see fingerprints 
on this weather car, and you know, I it was really nasty looking. So to avoid that, I put on gloves. Once I put the gloves on, I take the car out the uh, box, and then what I do is I usually almost ninety nine percent of the time I fade the car down with what I call a fade mix, which is basically just white acrylic paint, and it has a dab of uh, brown into it, just so it's not so bright white. And then I fade the car down with either one or as many as 10 or 15 coats, depending on what the picture says. Uh, if the picture is of an orange box car that's been faded so much it looks almost pink, then I have to do a lot of fading. If it's just, you know, not shiny anymore, dull down, I'll do one or two coats of the um, fade mix. After that is done, what I usually do is I usually remove the uh, trucks at that point. And then I begin with um, doing some airbrush weathering or using the powders as well. Processes to finish all the weathering most of the time and then do the graffiti. Unless the graffiti's older, what I'll do is I'll do some weathering, I'll do the graffiti, and then I'll do weathering over that so it looks older as well. And through every step that I do, if I'm going to airbrush it, fade it down, and then add some um, weathering to it, I will clear coat it, which I use Krylon Crystal Clear. A lot of people swear by Tester's Dual Coat, but not, not me. I've passed them. <clears throat> I've gone past that a couple years ago. You know, they cost $5 and some change a can. I'm not paying it, so I go to Krylon Crystal Clear, which is 3 bucks a can. And um, I clear coat each, uh, each step of the car. And then at the end of it, I clear coat it, and I usually always end with powders on top. Because the clear coat sometimes takes the weathering away, so I, I put the powders on top. And what that usually does is it, it gives it the, the defined weathering, and it doesn't, peel, it doesn't come off on your fingers after that as well. It stays on, so it works pretty well. And at that point, I'm done. Do you have a favorite, uh, favorite brand of powder? Do you use the Bragdon powders, or is there something? Yes, I use AIM weathering powders. That's my favorite. I don't use any, anyone else. Just AIM Weathering Systems powders. It's about five bucks uh, per color. I have about twenty to twenty-five different colors. So you can see my investment into weathering is pretty extensive, as well as with doing graffiti. Um, I didn't just go out one day and buy twenty-five containers of weathering. I started with a few different ones that are important, like grimy black is important, fresh rust, earth brown. There's about four that is very that's very important to have. You know, you're gonna want like <clears throat> dust, dirt, grimy, black, and um, maybe a light powder as well. Those are the most important ones, and and then the rust colors become important too because sometimes it's dark rust, sometimes it's light rust. So I just started buying and buying and buying, and I custom mix them too to get the colors I want. That's basically uh, the most important thing when it comes to weathering for me powders i noticed that you're using almost exclusively acrylic paints for your uh for your airbrush work and uh i saw the galleria brand of the tube paints but uh what are you using for the for the liquid paints when you're mixing your your fade down and your uh dirt colors for the airbrushing i use folk art it's from walmart and the reason why i use acrylic paint a lot of people ask me this and it's kind of hard to explain it when i'm typing to people on youtube so this gives me an opportunity to tell people the reason why I use the folk art acrylic paint is um, going through an airbrush. If you use other acrylic paints like Floquil or other paints that are that's not acrylic paint, soon as it dries in that airbrush, 
you almost have to clean it instantly. It it becomes you're cleaning up the airbrush, spending more time cleaning the airbrush than you are weathering, and it makes it very difficult, and you can get really tired of weathering almost instantly, which almost happened to me too. But once I changed over to the folk art acrylic paint, you can literally leave the paint in the bottle, hooked up to the airbrush for three, four days, come back and use it again. That's how great it is. It does not uh, clog up your airbrush instantly. You know what I'm saying? So you can just reuse it, reuse it, and that's the best part about it, and that's why I use folk art. It lets me be lazy to not have to clean my airbrush after every usage or after every color change. So that's why I use folk art, which is from Walmart. It's about a dollar per color. And you don't and I, uh, you don't have to filter it or strain it beforehand. You don't find it's lumpy or nope. No, I take it, I squeeze it. What I usually do is I take the colors that I'm really going to need. Again, there's like three big major colors, which is going to be my fight, my fade white. I'm going to need uh, three different colored browns: one dark, one light, for like dust, and then like a reddish color one. Um, those are like the main colors I keep in bottles. Now, what I usually do is water bottles. You know, cheap little water bottles, 20-ounce water bottles, and I dump the water out. And I fill them up with warm water. That's how I shake up the colors. And I don't measure at all. I just squeeze in colors, squeeze in, like, just a whole bunch of white. I squeeze in, then I add a little bit of brown, mix it all up in this in this water bottle, and then set it aside. So then I always have it in stock. And uh, that's how they basically come about. And as I reuse them, they separate. The paint separates from the water. You know, days and days that pass by, I just shake it up as, you know, as much as I can before I pour it into the next bottle for using for airbrush. And that's how it goes about. And are you using a compressor or bottled air or or what? I don't hear any compressor running when you're doing your... Well, that's the cool part because, you know what, everybody out there is convinced that it's going to cost... Two, three hundred bucks to get you started in this, and it's not the case. I use a cheap airbrush, a double action airbrush I got off of eBay for 40 bucks, right? It's the best airbrush in the world. And the air compressor that I use is just from the pawn shop. See, you know me, I'm straight hustling and I'm trying to get the best prices, so I'm not going to go to the hobby shop and buy an airbrush for 200 bucks. I'd be a fool. So, what I do is I go to the pawn shops. There's, a do- there's dozens and dozens of pawn shops around. I go there, spend 40 bucks on a two gallon air compressor. Right, I just hook it up. You don't need any, you don't need a condenser, no, no nothing to filter out the, the um, what is it, the humidity in it? I forget what it is. Moisture. There's you don't need a moisture trap. See, a lot of people think you need a moisture trap, so you got to get these ones. I don't have a moisture trap or nothing. I just have a two-gallon air compressor. Basically, hook it up. It fills up. It lasts for a pretty long time, and there's no rumbling all the time when I'm airbrushing, and. When I use acrylic paints, I also use it at a very high PSI. So the air, the airbrush compressors that they sell, they go to, what, 35? Everyone always recommends 35 PSI or less. That's for the other kind of paints. I don't, I don't even know the name. Is it like enamel paints? Uh, yeah, lacquer or enamel paints. Uh, typically, they, people blow them out at maybe 18 to 22 PSI. Right, and I understand why, because, you know, it's a lighter. It's almost like gasoline compared to oil. Um, it's a lighter uh, paint, but with the acrylic paint, I blow it out at like 50 PSI and it comes out perfectly, you know, misses out. Per- I love it. 50 PSI all day long. Okay. And, um, again, like I said, pawn shops, I tell people all the time, even a lot of people don't think about this. I tell them all the time, always think about 
another use for something that's used for something else. Like an air compressor is used for doing housework and stuff. But you know what? You can use that same air compressor for doing airbrushing. Mm-hmm. And uh, get it cheap at a pawn shop. 40 50 bucks for a two-gallon. I had a question. I guess this is kind of out of sequence. But I had a question. Is it... Do you ever run into a, a prototype where somebody's tagged the car and then someone else has come and overwritten that tag? Or is there some kind of unspoken uh, agreement that you don't tag over other people's work? Well, from what I know from graffiti, um, you know, I, I, I know enough about it to know what I'm doing. And graffiti is considered like an art. So if you tag over someone's graffiti, it's considered mad disrespectful. So most people who do the tagging and stuff like that, they know not to go over someone else's work. And if you go over someone else's work, it would be considered disrespectful, or you would do it as a way to disrespect the person. So in the ghettos, that you, I can put it, if you go to one neighborhood, there'll be graffiti on a wall for the gangs in the neighborhood. And what typically happens is, other gangs from other parts of the cities, they'll come over there and tag on their walls, which is like a plain disrespect, you know, to the gang or whatever else. Now, tagging on cars is not always gang, gang affiliated. It's usually most, mostly actually not gang affiliated at all. It's just people who like to tag. I want to get into your videos a little bit. You've got almost uh, 220 videos online right now, most of which are related to your southern california division of your railroad or simply the techniques and tools that you use to to do the work and one of the most interesting videos that i saw was where you described all of the different paint markers and pens that you use to do the graffiti work and uh there was another one that showed you using a a chalk-like or white a white pencil it's a sketch it's a sketch pencil mm-hmm. for sketching yeah so what, what you see is uh, there's charcoal sketching pencils that they sell at Michael's or other uh, craft stores like that. And inside that white sketch, uh, inside that package of uh, black charcoal sketching pencils, there's a white one in there as well. That is so perfect for doing scribbled graffiti on the side of cars or also doing... Uh, white that's filled in inside graffiti that looks translucent. I use the white chalk pencil um, to to get that effect. And as you see in my videos, I use a multitude amount of uh, different paint pens because one paint pen might work for one box car and it won't work for another one and depending on color too so a light box car is going to be easier to do than a darker one so then a darker one i need to use a different pens which is meant for dark colors Uh, i use a lot of pens i use sharpies i use regular pens i use pencils Uh, there's a ton of different ones i just buy them all the time i go to i go to the craft store and just buy pens um, one of the steps I do first, as I, a lot of people see, is I freehand all my graffiti. And what I do is I look up on my uh, computer, look down at the model, and I just look up and down, up and down, up and down, and I do it by pencil first. Once I get the pencil sketch down, then I go over it with the colors, the pens, and all that stuff. You've got, st- you've got pencils and pens and markers that are based on, on solvent 
with the paint or solvent with an ink and some with alcohol and a stain and other ones with the uh, the chalky uh, white. Now, what happened? Do you have problems with them uh, running or mixing when you're when you're doing the adjoining section? Uh, well, or no. Do you seal them? What, what the biggest problem with me with graffiti was is trying to get a good white. Good white or black was the hardest colors to get. And it's hard to get the effect. Before I started using the white chalk pencils, it was hard for me to get that effect of um, just the scribbled uh, graffiti that's in simple white that's translucent. Now I can get it perfectly, which I'm really excited by that I tried it. Out of nowhere, I just tried it, and it worked perfectly. So I use watercolor pencils because some graffiti that looks like it's older, I use watercolors because that looks makes it look older. Um I have, like, some of them do actually bleed around. One of the ones I, I always talk about in my videos was Deco Color. Those paint pens are around three bucks a piece in as many different colors. And white was one I used a lot. The thing is, is that when you use that, those Deco Color pens, they can tend to bleed all over the, the car. So you have to be careful with it. And I always use a blow dryer when doing graffiti because I want it to dry instantly. I don't want to be sitting here waiting for it to dry and come back five minutes later. I want it to dry instantly so I can go on to the next step. Right, okay. So uh, just a small hair dryer, and do you seal at all with the Krylon between layers? I may. It depends on what, I, it depends on what I'm doing. Let's say, uh, let's say that I'm doing a red on top of a blue boxcar. If I put the red of most pens, it, the first coating of red on top of it may look purple. It doesn't look right. So what I'll do is I'll put red on, I'll clear coat it. Then I'll go red on again, clear coat it until it might be around three layers thick, but you won't see it. It won't be looking thick. If you look close to the, to the hopper, boxcar, whatever it is, it won't look thick, but it'll take, you know, three coatings to get that rich, rich red color. So sometimes I do clear coat in between uh, layers and colors and stuff like that. So it, it all depends on how I'm working, what I feel like at the moment. And uh, I keep a list in front of me. There's a list that I keep in front of me, which reminds me about like 10 major things that these cars have on them when weathering. So like rust is one, graffiti, uh, grime, dirt. I have like, there's like 10 that I always look up to. So I'm like, oh, that's right. I want to do safety stripes, you know, which is also another technique. I use 3M yellow tape, which simulates the uh, reflective tape on real um, rolling stock. And some pictures have it. Some of them don't. And to ultra modernize any rolling stock, you throw on that yellow safety stripes and there you go. You have it. A nice modern piece of rolling stock. Okay. Do you... Uh... Do you get into generating any of the uh, special labels that might be on a car or car forwarding labels that might be placed on any of the the data pockets around a car? Have you seen those? Um, there's there's small routing tags, or they might uh, might be a special symbol for uh, a hazardous material or corrosive material. Uh, well, if if I see it in a picture <laughs> and it's really noticeable, I will go for it. Typically, I tell people, for my satisfaction, I go for around 
90 to 95 percent accuracy. If I can get it 100 percent, that's great. But I'm not always shooting for 100 percent. Um, a lot of people I see who are custom weathers quote, they say, uh, "Oh yeah, it took me three weeks to do this car." I'm like, "Yeah, whatever. It takes me between three and six hours to do a car." And uh, I can come up with a car that is so realistic, looks really good, and sometimes I'm so impressed myself, I do not even sell the cars. I end up keeping them, or I regret selling them after I'm done doing them. Well, your skill level that if you really wanted to have that car again, you could make it for yourself again, right? Well, that's the funny thing that you mentioned that is because one of my favorite cars I did was about a year ago. It was called the Crane Hopper. A lot of people who who see my videos, they know about that one. Right after I was done doing it, I sold it. Around a month later, I really wanted it back, and I was out there like, hey, whoever, whoever I sold it to, I'll buy it back at, you know, 40 bucks more than I sold it to you for. No one ever contacted me. I ended up a year later, which is about a month ago, redid the hopper myself, obviously. <laughs> I really wanted it, so I redid it. It came out even better. So, you know, I can always uh, duplicate what I did before, and... um was, get whatever I want. Was there any project that you undertook that was a real, a real difficult uh, one to overcome? It just that you you had to fight with it to get it done. Was there the most challenging one that you ever did? Can you recall? Well, I, that? I, I can tell you that um, there's been times I've weathered rolling stock, and while I was doing a certain part of it, I said, "Oh wow, this is not going to work out," and almost ready to give up, throw it away, or whatever. And I just kept going, kept going, and kept going. By the time I was done, I was like, wow, it actually did work out. But one particular one that I remembered as being the most difficult one to this day is the Smurf-tastic hopper. A lot of people know this hopper. It's a two-bay hopper with, um, it says Smurf-tastic on the side, has Gargamel holding up one of the Smurfs, and has the Smurfs on the side. That was probably the most difficult one because the Smurf, in HO scale, the Smurfs are so small that actually trying to, Trying to draw them on the side of the hopper was so, so difficult that I had to actually um, make custom decals for just the figures. So although it was all custom hand done, the figures were all decals, you know. So I couldn't just, it was just too small. And I tried doing them by hand, but it would not come out. So that I found that to be the most difficult where I had to use a partial decal that I made in order to get the results that looked really, really, really good. But and you, in fact, somebody has just asked me to do that hopper for them again, which I'm working on over the next week or two. But you don't work with a magnifying lens or anything like that or uh, Optivizer. You're doing everything just uh, just with your eyes. So, yeah, it's going to be a heck of a job sometimes on the smaller uh, details. Yes, yes. I'm not using um, any really tiny, tiny, tiny pens either, so I can't find them out there, you know, so I can't find, like, a, a single hair pen. If I could, it'd be great, but I can't, so it's it's difficult to make a thin line if you're using a 0.5 millimeter tip, so sometimes I have to revert to what I can, and that was the only time I used a decal, I can tell you that. Everything else has been by hand, and one of my favorite ones I did was actually about... Two months ago, it was a um, Pink Panther mechanical reefer hopper. Oh, excuse me. A Pink Panther mechanical reefer boxcar. So it was a, basically a Coltrane blue mechanical reefer by Intermountain. And it had Pink Panther on each side. 
and the inspector in the middle. Oh, it came out so gorgeous. I didn't want to give it to the guy. You know, he already paid me for the job. I didn't even want to give it to him. I was like, oh, man, I wanted to send him his money back and keep it. It was that gorgeous. Fabulous. Uh, in, in your other videos, uh, you, you're, going, you're going at a mad speed through your videos. You don't seem to spend a lot of time analyzing the problem while you're working on it. You, think, you seem to think about it, go away, think about it, and come back and just go like hammer and tongs to get something done. Uh, including standing on your bench work to remove uh, <laughs> remove mountains and uh, lay the track. And, uh, you know, it seems like you get an awful lot done in a short period of time. Uh, is there, is there, like you said, you're not going for 100% perfect every time. 95, 90% is good enough. And I guess that's why it looks like you're getting so much done. You're not, you're not sitting there agonizing over that last tiny detail. Well, you know what? For me, I'm, one thing I hear from a lot of people, uh, which is probably the most popular thing I hear is, I would be too nervous to do that. That's what people tell me. I want to weather it, but I'd be too nervous to destroy my hopper or to destroy my locomotive. And that's one thing I don't fear. I'm not feared about destroying something. You know, I've destroyed more Kato's and Afton Genesis than people probably even own. And I wasn't afraid of it, you know? It was a $100 Afton Genesis or Cato, and I took a pawn trying to weather it. And there was times I wasn't successful two years ago, and I just wasn't afraid to take that step. And a lot of people do a lot of planning and a lot of talking about doing things on the train layouts. I just do it. And like I said, I just go down there, I do it, I get a vision in my head, I go straight at it, you know, OCD type, go straight at it until it's done. That's why I get a lot done in such a short period of time. And, um, again, I'm always thinking about one way to use something for another way, which in my, one of my last videos, there was a video where I showed how to build a mountain using spraying foam insulation. It just popped in my head. It wasn't that anyone showed me this. It popped in my head a number of months ago, and when it came time to build onto my mountain, I just did it. I wasn't afraid to try it. You know, if it didn't work, Worst case scenario, I rip it all out and do it again. Wasn't afraid. Right. So no fear. That's a good uh, a good way to look at it, and it'll probably get uh, get a lot of people up off their uh, their backsides and get something done. I know that one of the comments that uh, several people have made in our in our programs when they've called in, they've talked about this whole analysis paralysis uh, symptom that you get when you just sit and start going over something in your head and you you get the fear coming in and the uncertainty and the doubt and you're not quite sure where you're going to go or how it's going to turn out and then you just never do it. And right. it's really refreshing right. to see somebody come and just, you know, bang the hell out of things. If uh, if it doesn't work out, go and do it again. So uh, kudos to you for, for actually doing the videos and showing people to just get out there and do it. So Well, that's why... I'll tell you, the reason why I do most of my videos, too, is it because it gives people the opportunity to see how it's done so they're not afraid to take that step. Like, one thing for me, I still remember this. Six years ago, when I started laying my track down, I was afraid to lay flex track. It was something that was, I don't know, daunting to me. I was like, oh, my God, I don't want to do this. But once I did it, I loved it, and it was so easy. And a lot of people feel the same way I felt about it. So I'm like, okay, this is how I do it. Once you see how easy it is, you're like, wow, I could do that. And it gives people the opportunity to look, oh, this is how easy it is. Oh, okay, I'm going to do it. And they do it. Um, for me, I just like to try everything. You know, I'll try every 
aspect of this hobby at least once. And if I like it, I continue with it. And I do it. And the reason why I started doing weathering videos is because weathering seemed to be like an elite part of this hobby. And I have to say this, you know, there's a lot of stuck up, ignorant people in this weathering business who do not want to share their secrets like it's some big uh, secret society and you can't tell how somebody gets this result. So I had to learn a lot of my weathering all by myself, all self-taught, you know, getting the textured rust. I learned that myself. I just thought of it, tried it, it works. So what I did was I was like kind of like to slap them all in the face, these custom weathering people, is I started doing the videos, showing them how the, how they did this. This is how you get this result. You know, I used to ask people all the time. I still remember when I was first trying to learn how to weather, I always asked, how do you get the faded look? That was something I wanted to know more than anything. How did they fade it down? I never got a straight answer. These people are so stuck up and stuck on themselves that they wouldn't tell you. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I get paid to do it. You know, I'm not going to tell you. That's how they feel, you know. Well, So I was like, okay, I learned how to do it, and now I share it. It's like, I guess it's like the magicians, right? You can't tell yes. how the how the trick is done because then all the magic is gone. But uh, And I get a lot of hate mail because of that, too. That's how a lot of it started because a lot of people felt as though I was taking business from them by showing people how it's done and and the way I do it. And it's not saying that this is the only way to do it. This is how I do it. Some people don't like it. Some people love it, you know, and they do it or they don't. Simple. Back in uh, back in the 50s and 60s, if you didn't do your own painting and weathering, you weren't really a model railroader because you couldn't, just, you just couldn't go down to the store and buy anything you wanted. You could go down yes. and buy a box full of parts with a, a sort of a, an okay drawing of how it all went together. But after that, it was all up to you and you're using right. cellulose paints and oil paints and, and <laughs> you know, automotive stuff to try and finish these. Now we've got uh, all these tremendous products that you've been uh, picking up at the hobby shop and the craft store and uh, the art stores and applying them to the models, and um, it's it's really impressive to see the reaction you get from people. And like you say, they either love you or hate you, but uh, <laughs> at least they're participating somehow. And right. uh, a couple of videos you had uh, at the shows where you panned around with the camera and there was some young kids, maybe 14 to 16, and they all seemed to be really enthusiastic about what you were saying. Maybe you were engaging them in a way that they didn't uh, get from the, uh, let's say, the typical, and I'm in this category, the typical middle-aged uh, white guys standing behind the uh, the layouts. And uh, I, find, I know it's hard for some of us to uh to uh, i'm gonna sound stupid saying this but to hook up with the kids to to talk to them at their level in a manner that they can relate to and you seem to be able to to relate very easily to them and in a, they they look at you and say wow if he's doing the trains maybe this isn't a nerdy hobby after all right he, he looks like he's with it and he's you know, he's got some credibility and street sense, and uh, he talks like we do, so I guess it's got to be okay. And that's really uh, encouraging to me to see that, because if we don't have the younger people getting into the hobby these days, in 20, 30 years, there's not going to be a hobby. There's just going to be a bunch of people sitting around the old folks' home saying, remember when we used to have trains? And frankly, <laughs> that's going to be pretty sad. So, Well, I can tell you, I really, really... 
love when I hear, well, I actually get messages quite often of people who say I inspired them. Um, that's kind of like really, really crazy to me. But, you know, I get the messages that I've inspired somebody who says, oh, I've always liked trains and, uh, you know, I see your videos and how you do it. It's so fun. I'm going to do it. And I get, I got a message like that on my YouTube channel just last week from one person who happened to be a minority in the city was like, yo, I'm hanging out on the projects and I see what you're doing. It's like, I want to do it. And he was like, I'm going to build a layout. So, um, I think I do relate to a lot of younger people because again, like I said, I'm a big kid. I can admit I'm immature. I'm always busting jokes. And one thing I do pride myself on is I I have the time to answer almost every email and every question that's asked to me. And I get asked a ton of questions all the time, but I answer them. I'm not, I don't feel too big to answer some of these small questions that people consider. I answer all the questions. I give honest opinions. I don't beat around the bush. I don't tell somebody that they're, people ask me all the time, how does this weathered model look? I don't say, oh, it looks gorgeous just to make them feel good. I'll tell them it looks like crap. You know, you need to practice doing this, doing that. So I'm honest. Um, I'll bust jokes and everything like that, but I know what I'm doing. So I have fun with the videos and, you know, I'll be honest to you. um, Three years ago, I didn't expect to have so many viewers and I did find out that I do have quite a lot of younger viewers and younger fans, I guess you can call them. And um, you had a young you had a young guy from Iowa come visit you personally. Is that correct? How did yes. that? How did that come about? Was he just he just contact you off YouTube or something? Well, he was a guy. He was a kid. His name was Dylan. He was a kid who seen my videos and seen them for a while. And his he showed his mom and his father and stuff. And they were in like Iowa or somewhere. But they had somebody who lived in Connecticut that was relative. Maybe it was his mother's mother. And when they came down to visit his mother's his grandmother, I guess. They wanted to make a trip to come up to visit me, to see my house, to see my trains, and see how I work. And I was more than happy to open my door to them. I'm more than happy to open my door and my hobby to anyone who asks me, basically. And he came down one day. They, we set up the plan for a day. They came from Iowa. They, his parents drove him up here. Uh, I spent the day with him, showing him how I do everything. And we had a great time. He learned straight for me, how I did everything, and I think he had a great time, I had a good time, and uh, that was the end. <laughs> a, a day with Big Al, that's got to be pretty good for a young guy. Hey, you know, <laughs> this, I think that's pretty cool then, you know? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Okay, uh, the only other thing I, I really wanted to touch on here is uh, is your involvement with Train Life. Uh, how did you get hooked up with, uh, I guess it's uh, Tracy Oates? Is, is that the right name? Tasha. Tasha, Tasha Oates. Oates. I beg your pardon. Okay. Uh, and she's she's involved at the, the corporate end of this project, and you're one of the public faces of the project now. So uh, how did you get uh, set up with that? Well, last year, when exactly was fairly new, I, I did a video at Springfield, and... Before I did the video, some of the guys who were there, like John, uh, the, the, actually the president, John Patisa, uh, he happened to see my videos. Blaine, he seen my videos. They see my videos and they said, wow, we like your videos. We watch them. I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. 
I can't believe you guys watch my videos. But I was like, you know, I want to do a video on what you guys have that's new. So I did a video, interviewed them and everything, and it was just a quick video about what they have that's new. And they liked it. They seen the video. They thought it was cool. And when Train Life was started up, I was contacted by Tasha uh, probably back in September. And she said that they were starting a, a website called Train Life. And it was going to be a, a place that was similar to Facebook. And um, she wanted to know if I was interested in working with them and uh, promoting the website and helping them with videos and things like that. And I was like, yes, I'm very, very interested in to that. I wanted to start a some somewhat of a forum myself um, for a while. So this was an opportunity for me to be here in the beginning of this website, which I think is going to grow and become really big at some point and become the number one place for all model railroaders to go, whether you're in N scale or O scale. And from that moment on, I agreed. I said, yes, I want to jump on right now. And once I agreed, we discussed, you know, some certain details about my videos and stuff, as you know, and the image of being a public face and things with my videos, which, you know, you might see me swear or say things. And just we discussed things about that, basically. And um, I started once the once the website was up and running, I was like, great. I set I set up my account. Had it going on, and I instantly made a video, which was to start bringing people to the website and put the word out there. And before you know it, it just started blowing up, and a lot of people are there. I find myself there on a daily basis, multiple times a day. It is a great site. It's like Facebook, but when you say something like Dash Eight or AC Forty Four Hundred, people understand your language. As yeah. you say that at Facebook, people are going to be like. What the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> yeah. Who, who's he talking to? And, you know, you might have friends and family on Facebook and then model railroaders, too. So model railroaders know what you're talking about, but not the friends and family. And this is just all model railroad related. So it was something I thought was really, really, really good. And I wanted to back it 100 percent. And that's where we are today. So you're having a lot of fun with it. And you said something about uh, opening this up to uh, all the different scales. Have you ever thought about working, doing any work in N scale or O scale or maybe S scale or some of the uh, less popular ones? Or are you still going to stick with HO for most of your custom work? Well, I, I'll tell you the truth. You know, I venture into def- different scales, but I've done N scale, I've done O scale models. HO scale is the strongest scale, and it seems to be the best market for uh, reselling some of my items. I don't resell my items to get rich. I resell my items mainly to support my hobby, and uh, I have a great time with it, and every model that I do is a personal model for me. I don't cookie-cut weather a whole bunch of models. I do models that's interesting to me, and then they end up going up for sale, or I end up keeping them, and um, I've done end scale for people. Somebody just sent me an N-Scale set today, in fact, which I will be doing for him. And the most popular seems to be HO-Scale. I've done O-Scale for people as well. HO-Scale seems to be the most interesting to me, and I stick to it more, but I'm open to doing any scale. Somebody contacted me about doing some G-Scale stuff, and I was like, yep, I'll do it. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not afraid to say, yes, I'll do it. And I'm not thinking, oh, my God, what if I destroy his G-scale engine? I'm not afraid because, you know what, I think I I feel confident enough I can do it. 
and it will come out right. Did you uh, did you notice any particular challenges or uh, surprises when you were trying the different scales when you were working with N or O? Is there some technique that you had in HO that always came out just perfect, and you tried it in the other scale, and you say, "Oh man, this is this is too coarse or too fine, or I can't see the detail I'm looking for." I'll tell you, the paint pens and N scale don't mean nothing. <laughs> it's very difficult to get the results of a custom graffiti on an HO, it's difficult to get that same result on an N scale. So it's much smaller. Of course, as you know, you know, one, one, one twenty second uh, scale, it's much smaller than HO. So if I'm going to do custom hand graffiti on an N scale, it's going to be much more work, much difficult. Um, and there's things that I'll do differently. You know, sometimes I might have to cut down a, uh, paintbrush to make it so that it's just one or two hairs attached to it to get this results. But that's going to take me much longer. It's going to be much harder work. And then I'm going to want to charge more for this kind of work. You understand what I'm saying? And people in N scale are not going to want to pay more for me to do something that they feel is, oh, that's smaller than HO scale. Why would you want to charge more for something like this? And it's more difficult. It's about the labor, right? It's about the labor. Yeah, yeah. It's not about... Uh, being able to just hand draw stuff, it's the labor and what what it's going to take me, how much harder it's going to be in a smaller scale. And an O scale, I could use a paint pen and probably come up with easy, fun results better than even an HO scale. Yeah. And I found that out as well too, like doing the graffiti in O scale, using a paint pen, uh, much much easier. Right. Is there any project that you've got in the back of your mind right now that you'd really like to get, uh, if you had the free time to go and dig into it, that you'd go and do right now? Yes. there's. Well, when it comes to weathering, there's one project I've been in, been really interested in, too, for like the last three weeks. It's a Dash 8 4DCW BNS Santa Fe in the war bonnet scheme. Now, Canadian National purchased some from... BNSF, and what they did was they these they're faded, they're chipped, they're beat up to heck, and what they basically did was took this orange paint along the sides of each side of it where the numbers was and where it said Santa Fe and it says CN and then their new numbers. I think they look so so cool. I'm I want to do one for myself, and I'm that's like the one I want to do so bad. But I'll tell you, I'm having a very difficult time finding an atlas. Dash 840CW um, for sale. It's hard as heck. And when I see them on eBay, they're going for crazy money. So I'm working on trying to get one right now, but uh, that's probably the one thing that I want to do the most right at this moment. Fantastic. Uh, Big Al, it's been absolutely terrific to have uh, have the chance to chat with you on Model Real Radio tonight. And I know we're going to get a lot of positive feedback on the content from this interview. And... Uh, we have a little unwritten rule. Once you've been invited on the show once, you can drop by anytime you like, drop in, say hi. Uh, we usually do the show every couple of weeks uh, in a, on a Saturday evening. And uh, we have live section where people can call in. They'll probably get a chance to ask you some questions personally. Uh, I know you're having a big impact in, a, in the hobby at the moment. And I uh, really appreciate the chance to have this one-on-one -on -one conversation with you and learn a little bit more about what you're doing and how you go about it. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I would also like to do a call-in live where people can call and ask me questions, 
which I can answer much easier than typing on YouTube. And uh, I encourage people to come check me out on YouTube. It's on the Monster Railroad. All you have, all you have to do is type in Monster Railroad, you know, two R's in the middle, and you'll find me on YouTube. And also come check out my website if you get a chance to see how I'm doing my custom weathered stuff. It's at custom custom monsterpieces.com. All one word, custom monster pieces. And uh, come see what I've been doing. Absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much, Big Al. Thank you very much. Nice talking to you.